So I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew 24. We want to finish out the chapter, verses 45 through 51. Very appropriate song for the, the sermon this morning. Parable of two servants is what I've titled the message. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. And uh, we thank you for the warnings that are here. Uh, Lord, uh, something to say to both believers as well as unbelievers here this morning. Pray that you would... Uh, Work uh, through the text. Work through the Word of God as it goes forth this morning. Help me to teach accurately and clearly and uh, bring glory to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Note on the overhead, we are working through the Gospel of Matthew, and the theme is Christ the King, and we are in chapters 24 and 25. Commonly called the Olivet Discourse, it was given on Tuesday just a few days before Christ was crucified. The Olivet Discourse is essentially prophetic in nature. It is the key prophetic passage in the New Testament because the rest of the New Testament builds on it. I call Daniel 9 in the Old Testament, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, God's prophetic seed plot of the Old Testament. And I call Matthew 24 in the New Testament, God's prophetic seed plot of the New Testament. Uh, Let me have a series of slides that I just, by way of overview, cover with you. Uh, Revelation is progressive. Uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, uh, God's prophetic seed plot in the Old Testament. Daniel 9 gives an overview of God's prophetic plan for Israel, uh, culminating in the kingdom. Uh, Jump forward to Matthew 24, God's prophetic seed plot in the New Testament. Uh, In Matthew 24, Jesus ties the end and his coming to Daniel 9, giving more background information and giving new revelation showing there are two phases to his second coming. And then, building on this, we have further New Testament prophetic revelation. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, the book of Revelation, of course, ties the whole package together, and so forth. So just in terms of following the idea of progressive uh, revelation, Daniel 9, outline of God's uh, prophetic program. Matthew 24 builds on Daniel. And then the New Testament epistles build on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21 are considered parallel passages. And while there is overlap, there are also some distinctions. Uh, for example, uh, you know, given on different uh, even occasions. But what makes Matthew 24 stand out is that it is most clear in presenting the reality of two different phases to Christ's second coming. The language is pretty clear in this regard, at least in my mind. Uh, Notice he says, when its branch puts forth leaves, you know it is near. When you see all these things, know it is near. And then there's a transition, as we see in verse 36. And after the transition, but of that day and hour, no one knows. And did not know, watch therefore, you do not know. If the master of the house had known, the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a converted Jew, great scholar, says Matthew 24, 36 begins with the word but. He is now introducing a new subject, and that is the rapture. Well, I agree with Dr. Fruchtenbaum. John F. Hart says in the book Evidence for the the Rapture, The pre-tribulation rapture is the best exegetical and theological interpretation of Matthew 24, 36 through 44. Other rapture theories do not do justice to the transitional nature of verse 36, to the nature of the Noah illustration, or the imminence resident in the passage as illustrated in the thief imagery, and the very to be alert. It should be acknowledged that Jesus was the originator of the pre-tribulation rapture teaching both in the Olivet Discourse and in John 14, 1 through 3. And that Paul, Peter, and John were dependent upon the discourse for much of their teaching about the rapture. Well, I think that's true. 
we commonly call the first phase of Christ's second coming the rapture, and the second phase his return to the earth. So uh, you note this here. We're living uh, here in the church age. Uh, then the next event, uh, the first phase, is, this is really what we're looking for as a church, the rapture. And then uh, we will return with Christ at the second phase, when he comes to the earth. This is in the clouds. This is all the way to the earth. But uh, I see Christ teaching a distinction between this phase and this phase, as seen in Matthew 24. And I want you to note uh, the phrase, that day, uh, of that day and hour no one knows, verse 36. That phrase that day, or the day, in parallel passages, often is used in in an elastic sort of way, in that it may embrace the entire package of both aspects of Christ's second coming, as well as the 70th week of Daniel. But note that while it may refer to the entire package, it may also just have one particular aspect of the package in view, all depending on the context. So note what I'm saying here. Uh, that day, the day, can be a package, referring to the first phase, the 70th week, or the second phase. It, it can refer to this entire package, or it may single out, as it does sometimes, uh, just the, the seven-year tribulation period, or maybe just the second coming proper, yeah, the, the last of the second phase. Uh, I think we have all connected closely here in Matthew 24, uh, verse 33. So when you see all these things, know is near at the doors. Surely they say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day, what day? Well, that day, the connect intersects with this reality and this reality. Of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angel of heaven, but my father only... As the days of Noah were, so will also the coming of the Son of Man be. So he connects the coming of the Son of Man, but also with uh, the second coming that is near, related to uh, what he has just talked about in terms of the time of 70th week of Daniel. So I would see that day in Matthew 24, 36 as being a connector to both an introduction to the 70th week of Daniel and at the same time connected to the Lord's unexpected coming at the rapture. Robert Thomas says, after Matthew 24, 36, Jesus looks at the events of Daniel's 70th week as a whole and how the beginning of that week will catch everyone by surprise. This is why I describe both the first and the second phase of the second coming as bookends to the 70th week of Daniel that are closely connected and yet distinct from the 70th week. This is a package, and yet made up of distinct parts. So note uh, what I say, bookends. We have bookends here, first phase, second phase, bookends to the 70th week of Daniel. And Jesus ties, I believe, both the first phase and the second phase very closely to that seven-year tribulation period. This is why the coming of the Lord in the rapture is described as coming as a thief in the night. And this is why the day of the Lord is also described as coming as a thief in the night. It's like two sides of the same coin. On one side, you have the coming of the Lord. On the other side, you have the coming of the day of the Lord. It's like the doorway of the ark. On the one side, you have the Lord locking Noah inside, signifying deliverance. On the other side, you have judgment. And it all happened on the same day. Note the language of Matthew 24, 38 through 39. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. Until the flood came and took them all away. This same day meant deliverance for some and judgment for others. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Dr. Michael Vlock says, the rapture should not be studied as a standalone issue. 
it is directly related to the day of the Lord and functions as an evacuation for the church before the day of the Lord begins. Christ is the first one to reveal that there are two phases to the second coming. But then the New Testament goes on to make many clear distinctions between the two, between the first phase and the second phase of his second coming. I want to present a series of uh, overheads and interact with them just briefly here. But uh, I, I didn't steal this. I'm borrowing this. Uh, I, I got it from Precept Austin Ministries, and I changed just a few little things. But uh, they did such a good job that I am basically sharing uh, what they have brought out here. So we're talking about the return of Christ. And there's a distinction between the first phase and the second phase. Uh, the first phase is for his saints. The second phase is with his saints. Question, what is the most generally accepted designation? The rapture. The second coming. Uh, what other terms are used? The translation of the saints. The first stage of Christ's return, which I've been using a lot. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The second stage of Christ's return. What relationship to the saints? Christ will come for his bride, the church. Christ will come with his bride, the church. What are the Greek verbs uh, specific? Caught up uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4. No specific Greek verbs. Uh, what Greek nouns refer to this event? Same ones to both the first phase and the second phase. How is Christ portrayed? Uh, bridegroom, a marriage ceremony. Second phase, king of kings, lord of lords, coronation of a king. Why does Christ return to deliver saints? To judge, wage war against sinners. Of course, you might add there, to deliver Israel. Uh, who is removed at the return? Believers. They have a blessed hope, right? That's our, that's our blessed hope, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing. Uh, unbelievers, uh, they have no hope. Uh, they will be removed in judgment at this point. Uh, what is the relation to the millennial kingdom? No direct relation to the millennial kingdom. And then the second phase immediately precedes the millennial kingdom. Uh, which scriptures are relatively specific? Uh, these are the key rapture. There are others, but here's the key ones. 1 Thessalonians 4, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15. A whole host of them related to the second phase. Uh, where are these uh, events described? Revealed only in the New Testament. This is significant. Uh, the first phase is revealed only in the New Testament. You don't find it in the Old Testament because it relates to the church. Uh, revealed in both Testaments, uh, the second phase. Uh, what is the timing? Precedes the 70th week uh, of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation. Terminates the Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year tribulation. How can this event be predicted? It cannot be predicted. It's unknowable. It's imminent. Specific time unknown. That's the rapture. But the second coming, yes, can be predicted. It's knowable. 2,520 days after Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel or 1,260 days after he breaks the covenant. And we talked about this last week. You wonder how many of these slides I have, don't you? <laughs> how quickly will it occur? In a moment. That word moment is re related to Adam, which initially they thought was, a, was unsplittable. So an uns the, the shortest amount of time possible. That's the idea. Twinkling of an eye. How about the, uh, the second phase? Slow enough to be visible to the eye. Uh, what will the world see? Will the world see the event? No, it's a private manifestation. Only believers see him. The world is spiritually asleep. Yes, for the second phase, it is, it is a public presentation. Believers and non-believers. Every eye will see him. What, signal, what signs signal this event? No signs. No clear signposts for the, the rapture. Well, what about this? Many signs uh, related to the second phase. What is the relationship to the book of Revelation? It occurs before Revelation chapter 4. And, of course, you've got, you know, the first three chapters of Revelation, 18 times, the church, the church, the churches, the churches, all the way through. And then during the tribulation period, no mention of the church. In chapters 6 through 18, not a single mention of the church until we finally get to you know, the second coming, and then after that, it's mentioned. So, what about this uh, second phase? Well, that occurs after Revelation chapters 6 through 18, uh, namely chapter 19. 
And then uh, where does Christ come? Uh, in the air. Christ's feet do not touch the earth. Second phase, earth. Christ's feet do touch the earth. How does Christ come? In the clouds. No mention of a horse, right? We don't have a mention of a horse in the rapture. How about this? On clouds, on a, on a white horse at, at the second phase. Clear distinction. Who comes with Christ? Well, Christ will bring with him the souls of those who sleep in Jesus. Uh, those souls are coming with them, and they're going to be connected with their bodies in the resurrection. Uh, at the second phase, those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. The armies, the saints, angels which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, uh, were following him on white horses. So, you know, they're just coming on their souls here. Here, here they're coming on white horses. Let's see. I think... Uh, uh, what are the associated judgments? The Bema Seat of the Saints. This is the believer's judgment. And then tribulation judgments fall on the earth in close uh, connection with it. Uh, church goes to heaven for the Bema Seat. Tribulation judgments fall on the earth. Second uh, phase, judgment of the Antichrist. Judgment of the sheep and the goats on earth. What attitudes are reflected? Comfort for believers. Uh, our blessed hope. It's, it's a comfort. But what about uh, the second phase? Mourning for all the tribes of the earth. What happens to the bodies of believers? Believers resurrected and put on immortality. How about the second phase? Believers surviving tribulation, intermillennium, in natural bodies. Of course, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at that time too. And then finally, this is my final slide for this section. Uh, where mentioned in the Old Testament, no specific mention. I mean, the rapture was a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the second phase mentioned all over the place in the Old Testament. Daniel is a prominent place, but you can go to Zechariah all over the place, uh, Isaiah. Uh, what changes on earth? No specific changes. Uh, the Mount of Olives splits at the second, uh, coming, uh, the second phase of the second coming. Uh, it splits in the middle. So all of this uh, to emphasize to you that there's a major distinction between the first phase and the second phase of Christ's coming. Christ in Matthew 24 introduced the reality of two phases to his second coming. And in doing so, he introduced what is called the doctrine of imminency in relation to the first phase, which we call the rapture. By the way, if uh, you want some time to study those slides, I will send them out to you, okay? I, I know it was fast. The Jews commonly saw a time of great trouble coming before the Messiah would come. But they knew nothing of imminency. That is because they did not know about the first phase of Christ's second coming, which is imminent. When we say the coming of Christ is imminent, it means that it could happen at any time, after revealing that no one knows the day nor the hour when he will come unexpectedly as a thief in the night, Christ then in three parables goes on to highlight and emphasize this idea of his imminent and unexpected return and the need to live ready. This emphasis is seen in the parable of the servants that we are looking at this morning in 24, 46 through 51. The parable of the ten virgins, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, and the parable of the talents, 25, 14 through 30. Warren Wiersbe says, in this section, the emphasis is on the Lord's delaying his return. It seems reasonable to assign Matthew 24, 45 through chapter 25, verse 30 to our present age of the church, during which time it appears that the Lord is delaying his return. The closing section, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, describes the judgment the Lord will execute when he returns to the earth. Well, let's get to our study this morning, Matthew 24, 45 through 51. And Jesus says here, as he begins this parable of the two servants, who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his house to give them food in due season? Stanley Toussaint says, the next illustration, the one we're currently studying, is bound to Matthew 24, 32 through 44. 
by the word then. This parable, therefore, underscores the importance of living ready in light of Christ's imminent return. Here in verse 45, Christ introduces the first of two servants. The first one is faithful and wise. The second one is evil. Life is a stewardship for which all will give an account. In this parable, the master, representing the Lord, made this servant ruler over his household to give them food in due season. The Lord's household is his people. And the Lord's people are what is most precious to him in the entire world. I mean, that's why Jesus came to die for our sins, to make us his people. The word servant is the Greek word doulos, which literally means slave. As God's people, we are God's slaves. As believers, we rightfully belong to God by virtue of creation and redemption. Jesus bought us with his blood, and we now belong to him. This is a good emphasis. Uh, You know, our bodies don't belong to ourselves. You say, well, it's my life. I can do what I want. Yeah, that's a worldly perspective. A Christian perspective is we now belong to Christ. He purchased us. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God? And you are not your own. You don't belong to you. You belong to Jesus. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. As God's slaves, we have been given a stewardship in relation to the household, the family of God. To give them food is the idea of taking care of them. And each one of us have a responsibility in this regard. 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God gave you a gift to make a contribution to the household. Now, in the world, there is nothing more important to God than the welfare of his people. This slave was put in a stewardship position of taking care of the family. Now, some have emphasized that this has special application to those who serve in leadership roles in the church, especially to elders and pastor teachers. Now, it is true that elders have special responsibility in feeding the flock, in feeding the word. And it is true that teachers are more accountable Uh, Note both of these principles stated, for example, in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who rule over you. That's those who, who we call elders, overseers, who have spoken the word of God to you. That's the principal thing elders do. They live it and they teach it. Whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then in James 3, 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. So it is true. There is greater accountability for those who are the leaders. Feeding the flock is the major responsibility of those who are elders, pastor, teachers. Paul says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. There's an emphasis there. But we need to remember that this is a parable, and parables generally are making one main point. And because of this, most commentators think that while there may be special application to spiritual leaders... The application is broader than that. As all God's children are gifted and all have a stewardship responsibility in relation to the household of God. William McDonald says the wise servant is the one who is found taking care of God's people. Verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. You know, all that God asks is that when he comes... He finds us doing what he has given us to do. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's pretty clear, isn't it? The faithful and wise servant makes the household of God a priority. This is connected to the household of God. Taking care of them, feeding them. 
The wise and the faithful servant is involved with God's people. They're making a contribution. They make the welfare of Christ's church family a primary issue simply because this is God's priority. We live in the church. What's God doing in the world? Well, he's building a forever family called the church. And he has gifted each one of his children and placed them in the body for the express purpose of building up the body. The family of God. This isn't just my responsibility, elder. We all have a role here. Isn't that what Ephesians 4.16 teaches us? Yes. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. One commentator says, when John Calvin was persuaded to give up his ministerial labors because of ill health, he said with some resentment, quote, what, would you have my master find me idle? It's a good question. Now, there's a time when we can no longer do what we used to do. That's true. But the idea here, as I see in the New Testament, is to finish the course that God has given us to run. I believe that there are many genuine Christians who will be ashamed when they see Jesus because, in fact, they were really not on the same page with Jesus when it comes to his household. They had other priorities, you see. I mean, we're busy. The cares of this life, you understand? That, that's a priority for these people. They're distracted with the many cares of this life. And, and there are all kinds of things that consume our attention. They have no time for the family of God. You see, rewards are for service. And those rewards, as I see it in the New Testament, are largely related to how we served God's family. That's the point of the parable here. Verse 47, Christ says to this wise and faithful servant in relationship to the household of God, Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. For the faithful and wise servant, there will be great reward. The reward for obedient service is the capacity for greater service. Hey, you've done well. Let me give you a bigger job. Those who are good stewards over what God gave them charge over in this life will have an even greater role of ruling in the kingdom. In Luke 19, Jesus gave a parable of stewardship concerning Minas. Now, one was faithful and was given authority because of his faithfulness over ten cities. Another was faithful and was given authority over five cities. But the unfaithful steward in that parable was called wicked and judged accordingly. All believers are joint heirs with Christ, and as overcomers will inherit all things. However, there will be differences of rewards in the kingdom related to our faithfulness in service. Those faithful in little will be made ruler over much. Verse 48. But, contrast, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. In contrast to the faithful and wise servant is the evil servant. The word evil is the idea of bad, wrong, or one who does harm. The evil servant is a nominal Christian who claims to be serving the Lord, but in truth ends up serving himself. As seen in verse 51, the destiny of this person is ultimately the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is consistently descriptive of hell as used by Jesus. This shows that this person was never a true believer. Yet he is here called a servant, more literally a slave, and he calls Jesus his master, more literally Lord. In a general sense, Jesus is Lord over all, and all owe their allegiance to him. John MacArthur says, Jesus was teaching that every person in the world holds his life, natural abilities, wealth, and possessions in trust from God, and must give an account of how these things are used. I think that's true 
First Peter, Second Peter rather, Second Peter chapter two, verse one, but there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. You see, they're accountable because the Lord bought them. Note the evil servant's most fundamental problem is that he has a heart problem. The heart represents the spiritual core of a person, the deepest recesses of his being. In his heart, this evil servant thinks Jesus has delayed his coming. And that now affects how he lives. You see, what you think about the Lord's coming is no trivial matter. Now, constantly people want to say, it doesn't really matter what you think. It's okay. I don't see Jesus saying, this is a little trivial matter. Let me give you three parables to show you how trivial it is. I don't think so. What you think about the Lord's coming is no trivial matter because if you really believe that Christ might come at any time, it affects how you live. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have the hope of seeing Christ and being like him, if you have this hope of of his revealing, looking for that blessed hope, if, if you have that hope in you, it has a sanctifying effect on your life. Everyone, no exception, who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Living in light of the hope of Christ's coming has a sanctifying effect on the believer's life. Years ago, a radio preacher by the name of Harold Camping set a date for the second coming. And it quite, which by the way is a very foolish thing to do. And the reason it's so foolish is because number one, it contradicts what Christ said. Number two, everybody who's ever done it has always been wrong. But he went about it with great conviction. And quite a few Christians joined him in this setting, this particular date. One of his followers called me up and wondered if he could start coming to church since the Lord was about to come. So I said, sure, join us. So he did. I mean, he was one of our most faithful attenders until... The date arrived that Christ was supposedly going to come. Christ didn't come. And this person didn't come to church anymore either. He totally dropped out. I have not seen him in all these years since. You know what? The evil servant here represents dropouts. He's a dropout. Now, I'm not saying that all dropouts are lost. But that really is the point here. It's, an, in a, an, it's a dropout who's an apostate in the case that Jesus is, is really presenting here. By the way, Harold Campion initially said uh, the Lord had come on that day in some sort of spiritual way. But finally, he had to admit he was wrong. He basically admitted he was wrong and died shortly thereafter. He certainly never regained his credibility. The point is that the faithful live ready ever expecting that Christ could come at any time. Christ wants us to live ready. That is the point. Now, the church age seems to be a time of delay, right? How long? I mean, it's just, we've been waiting. Had that hope for 2,000 years. He's not coming anytime soon. It seems to be a time of delay. And for this reason, the mocker says, where is the promise of his coming? We don't see it. Been preaching this for 2,000 years. Where is it? And they mock. Saying all things continue as they were. But Peter says to the mocker, don't overlook the fact that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And that he is not slow to fulfill his promise, but rather is patient. How patient is God? So far, he's 2,000 years patient. 
How patient is he? He is patient not wanting anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance. God in the age of grace is waiting for more to come to repentance. He doesn't want to pour out his judgment on the world in the sense he's waiting for more to get saved. We know the reason for the so-called delay. Peter tells us he's waiting for more to get saved. What do you suppose we should be doing about that? How about sharing the gospel with everybody around us? This evil servant has both a doctrinal defection and an ethical defection. He believes wrong. My master is delaying his coming. And therefore he lives wrong. When a person no longer takes the coming of Christ seriously, there is something majorly wrong in his heart. A huge part of the New Testament is given over to this theme. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The expectation of this verse is that the saved are those who are eagerly waiting for him. Verse 49, the uh, narrative or the, the description of the evil servant continues. He, he not only says the Lord's delaying his coming, but, but then it says, and begins to beat his fellow servants. He mistreats the household of God. He begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. What began as wrong thinking in his heart now works its way out in his behavior. Because he did not think his master was coming for a long time, he began to mistreat his fellow servants. And he began to fellowship with the wayward drunkards of the world. The potential coming of the Lord has no bearing on him. He's got his life to live. This is indicative of wickedness. It lives for self. I mean, that's what it was in Noah's day. That's the emphasis of Jesus here. It's not like they were doing all these wicked things. They each had no thought for God. It takes advantage of other people. It carouses with the world. Has no thought for God, his people, or the Lord's imminent return. Jesus is not this person's Lord. He flouts the Lord's instructions and acts as if he's his own master. He assumes a position of authority for himself. He's self-governed. He is violent and self-indulgent. He uses his position to exploit people for his own selfish gratification. It's all about him. His selfishness is intrinsic to his well, his evil being. It's intrinsic to his being evil. He doesn't care about anyone but himself, certainly not the well-being and the good of God's people which is a major indicator. William McDonald says, the evil servant represents a nominal believer whose behavior is not affected by the prospect of his master's soon return. Many who profess to be Christians show by their hostility towards God's people and their fraternization with the ungodly that they are not looking for Christ's return. And John Phillips says, he has no conviction about the coming of the Lord. He abuses his authority. He abuses those under him and finds his fellowship with drunkards. In spite of all his pretensions of being a Christian, he has never been saved at all. Frankly, very frankly, I think this is where, I hate to say it, you know, should I say many or should I say most? But I frankly think this is where most professing professing evangelicals are at today. Someone has said that Americans claim to revere the Bible, but they don't live by it. Many professing Christians are, in fact, practical atheists. I mean, survey after survey shows this. In the recent January edition of Decision Magazine, Lee Weeks reported that Barna of the Barna Research Group said 51% of adults surveyed claim to live according to a biblical worldview. However, when their beliefs and behaviors are measured by what he calls, quote, the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview, only 6% of American adults actually have a biblical worldview. So here's really what what, uh, it says. Reduce from 51, say, well, I have a biblical worldview, to 6%, just these seven questions. Uh, God is the eternal omniscient, omnipotent, and just creator. 
Boy, I think we should all agree on that. Humans are sinful by nature. Certainly we could agree on that, couldn't we? Yeah, 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 we should. Uh, Jesus Christ grants forgiveness of sin, eternal life when sinners repent and profess faith in him alone. Yeah. Uh, Bible is true, reliable, always relevant. Yep, absolute moral truth exists. Success is defined as consistent obedience to God. Life's purpose is to know, love, and serve God with all one's heart, mind, strength, and soul. I think as believers, we ought to say, I, I, I'm not struggling with this. The Bible is true, reliable, and always right. I, get, I can't go along with that. 51 said, I got a biblical worldview, but when you ask them these seven questions, we get out of 6%. Frankly, I think this is where most professing evangelicals are at. 60% of professing evangelicals believe that Christ is a created being. Goodness sakes. Verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day. He's coming. When's he coming? He's coming on a day when he's not looking for him. At an hour that he is not aware of. This is the entire point. This person was not ready. He did not take Christ coming seriously. There was no urgency. I'll get right just before I die. Notice this person was not looking for him. He was totally oblivious to Christ's imminent coming. He was not aware of it. And consequently, it caught him totally unprepared. There was no forewarning, no announcement, no signposts, no warning signal. No, suddenly the master shows up, totally unexpected. That's the whole point of the parable. This is how it will be at the time of the rapture. Once it happens, there'll be no time to get ready. This is why we have to be ready and live ready. Moody Bible Commentary, the parable of the unrighteous slave typifies the lack of readiness for the rapture. Bible Knowledge Commentary, like the wicked people of Noah's day, he was unaware of the sudden coming judgment. Yeah, the flood took the world by surprise. So will the rapture, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be. The thing about the rapture is that it comes at a time when life is just carrying on as normal. Yes, there will be trends of apostasy. We do see the day approaching, but we don't know how quickly it's coming. But there's no clear signpost like will be obvious in the tribulation period. This is the point. It comes unexpectedly with no forewarning. You know what, you know what the rapture's about? I'll tell you what it's about. It's about faith. You know what faith does? Faith takes God at his word. It's not about signs and wonders, but about taking God at his word. Jesus wants people to take him at his word and live ready. A God-honoring faith lives expectantly in keeping with Christ's warning. A God-honoring faith lives ready. And when he comes, the master will deal in judgment with a wicked servant. Verse 51, he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To cut in two is descriptive of deadly judgment. The master will appoint him his portion with the hypocrites because, in fact, he is one. You see, he claimed to believe in the Lord, even in his heart saying, Jesus is my master, but my master is delaying his coming. But it wasn't real, as seen in the actions he showed. A hypocrite is a pretender. Literally, one who wears a mask. This word hypocrite was used of, of those who you know, were in the theater, who played a certain part, but it, was, it wasn't real. A hypocrite is a pretender, a disingenuous pretender. The person being described here in Matthew 24 is described in, Matthew's, er, in 2 Timothy 3, 5 as having a form of godliness, but denying his life-changing power. Ed Glasscock says the evil slave represents not a true disciple, but one who professes to serve the master. His wicked heart was revealed by his selfish life and abuse of power. His lack of anticipation of his Lord's return demonstrated he was not genuine. You know something? Jesus was harder on religious hypocrites than on anyone else in his ministry. You do a study of that. 
It seems to me that hypocrisy is especially offensive to God. God is not into gamers. You know, those who play the game, but they're total phonies. And there's a lot of gamers. A hypocrite is essentially a liar. They lie about their relationship with God, which is a most serious lie. They claim they're saved, but they're not. But, oh, you wouldn't want to judge them or call into question. I got saved because someone dared to question me. I lived in a party house with four other guys. I mean, we lived a party. That's what we did. Almost every, you know, just constantly. Just party and party. That's what we did. We lived a party. And yet, I was a Christian, so I said. An atheist where I worked got saved. And he came to work saying he'd been born again. Life was changed. And I said, I too am a Christian. He said, what? He said, how can you call yourself a Christian living like you're living? I was a liar. I was a total hypocrite. Liars, hypocrites claim they're saved, but they're not. Over and over, the New Testament warns not to be deceived by those who claim to be Christian, but live a lifestyle of sin. Paul warns of this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, saying the unright, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Again, in Ephesians 5, after describing all manner of sinful living, he says in 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, 7 and 8 says, quote, Little children, let no one deceive you. Why all this emphasis on let no one deceive you? Because there's all kinds of hypocritical liars and deceivers who say, we're Christians, we're Christians. You liars, you deceivers. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. 1 John 2, 4 says, he who says, I know him, I know him, I know the Lord, I know him. I know him. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. A liar is defined by John, claims to know God, but lives a life of disobedience. And John says in Revelation 21, 8, all liars. And the way John uses the word liars, he's talking about religious liars who say they know God, but they don't. All liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The fate of the hypocrite is in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Consistently, Jesus uses this language as being descriptive of the experience of hell. There are true Christians, and then there are hypocrites. True Christians characteristically live ready, although we too may lapse, which is why we are exhorted to ever be watching and ready. But hypocrites consistently do not take the Lord's coming seriously at all. They live for the moment. They live for self. They have their own agenda and live accordingly. But oh, yes. They profess, are you a Christian? Oh, yes, I believe. I'm a believer. Oh, yeah. Hypocrites. The thing about hypocrites is they claim to know the Lord. They claim they're Christians. And who are you to judge them? And admittedly, we are not the Lord. We are not the final judge. But we are fruit inspectors. And if the spirit is right, where out of love we are genuinely concerned about them, that is the issue. Hypocrites are headed to hell if they don't come to repentance. That should trouble us. I grew up in a church where all, every, everybody claimed to be Christian that I knew of there. After I got saved, I was concerned that so many of my peers, almost none of them knew the Lord because I knew the other side. I lived there. The doctrine of Messiah's imminent return was not found in the Old Testament. This is a New Testament doctrine. Revealed in conjunction with New Testament truth, related especially to the church. In contrast to the Old Testament, which knows nothing of imminency, the constant emphasis throughout the New Testament is on Christ's imminent return. You say, Israel never lived in view of this, but the early church did, and the true church is ever called to live ready. Very quickly, 
Note these verses. New Testament revelation, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord. Maranatha, 16, 2. Philippians 3, 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is at hand. 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians were saved to wait for his Son from heaven. Titus 2, 13, looking for the blessed hope and the great tribulation. No, no, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Hebrews 9, 28, to those who eagerly wait for him. James 5, therefore be patient, brother, until the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Revelation 3, all these texts, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. The doctrine of imminence that Christ introduced in Matthew 24 became an avalanche of revelatory emphasis in the New Testament epistles that followed. For the church, the imminent of Christ is paramount. It is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. It's exciting. Could happen at any moment. William Barclay shared this illustration. He said, There is a fable which tells of three apprentice devils who were coming to this earth to finish their apprenticeship. It's just a, just a fable here. You understand. Uh, they were talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to tempt and ruin men. The first said, I will tell them there is no God. Satan said, that will not delude many, for they know there is a God. The second said, I will tell men there is no hell. Satan answered, you will deceive no one that way. Men know even now that there is a hell for sin. The third said, I will tell men there is no hurry. Go, Satan said, and you will ruin them by the thousand. And then Barclay says, the most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time. The most dangerous lie of all is not that there is no God, not that there is no hell, but the most dangerous lie of Satan is that there is no hurry. The Bible says, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. The devil always says, later. God says, now. And it may well be now or never. The master will come at a time unexpected. Expect the unexpected. Perhaps today. Live ready. Maranatha, my beloved. Maranatha. Let's stand and have our closing song.